This sermon, In a Little While, was preached by guest speaker Tom Wilkins on Sunday, October 3rd, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Our church at one point was this huge charismatic church and all of the stuff that came with it. It was all part of that church. And at that time, our name was Church of the Covenant. Our church came together, two churches joined forces in El Paso, and we formed Church of the Covenant, and in a great human effort, and I think they were trying to be as godly as possible, but great human effort, we uh, joined forces and called ourselves Church of the Covenant, and we made a covenant together. And you know how well human covenants go? It lasted about a year, and then we (laughs) broke up. (laughs) Uh, Church uh, split, our church shrunk down into a very small uh, church size, but we got the chairs We had like 80 members in the church, and we got 850 folding chairs. <laughs> Here's what's funny about those chairs. What's that? that yeah, that much cushion. And when you fold these chairs up, those of you that know the story, just bear with me. I always tell it. Um, Emily's here. She was back. Uh, she was born in our, our church, back, um, probably literally in the church. But anyway, we fold up the chairs. That's a whole other story, isn't it, Emily? <laughs> fold up the chairs. And on the bottom of the chairs, spray painted on 850 chairs, is Church of the Convenant. <laughs> the guys that spray painted the name of the church made up a word and spray painted it incorrectly on 850 chairs. Those are in all our community groups, just about. Red and blue chairs. If you have red chairs, they're worth a mint because we changed their color years later. It did help me to talk about Church of the Convenant. <laughs> it's not a word. Don't look it up. You're not going to find a word for it. That's good. Good. Oh. Um, I was just, I was telling the story just the other day. I used to love country music. I know it may shock you. Those are the guys that hang out with me at the pastor's college assumed I was from, uh, Texas assumed that I like country music. Now, I was at the pastor's college in my late 20s, early 30s, was that 1999 through 2001. At that, at that time, I had abandoned country music. Do you know what ruined me for country music? you know what caused my departure from country music? Disco. <laughs> Disco. And all the old gray hairs in the room are like, oh, Lord, help that boy. And uh, yeah, disco ruined country music for me. I could not listen to country anymore because something better had come along. <laughs> Something much better had come along. But you know what has also ruined in me? Preaching has been ruined. At least preaching the way that I used to preach. I can't approach the pulpit anymore because of the last, I would say, well, it's been a number of years, but finally it set in for me when Ricky began to preach and we began to visit this church often. Preaching and approaching preaching for me has been ruined. When I hear men like Derek and like Ricky, who have clearly faithfully labored as a head towards the pulpit, holding fast the centrality of Jesus on the cross, enter the pulpit full of the Spirit of the Lord and declare his word to you. It is ruined like disco, but better than disco ruined country. Your preaching, Derek, compared to disco music, has ruined preaching for me. I'm so grateful for you, brother. I mean it that way. The humor helps you, good. But you know what also has been ruined in me? Legalism and human effort has been ruined in me. I grew up 
in a church, essentially a cult that said you have to follow the, these standards of holiness to be saved. And your salvation was not secured because by the time you got to the car in the parking lot after church, you had already failed at a number of those standards of holiness. The doctrines of grace ruined me, has ruined me for legalism. Hasn't completely squashed it yet. It's still at work. Human effort still knocks at my door, but hearing the doctrines of grace faithfully declared from his word over the years has ruined me for human effort. If you would stand with me as we read Haggai this morning. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Hear the Lord's word. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with the glory, with glory, says the Lord of hosts, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this morning is that you would lift our eyes off of the things that we normally have our gaze fixed on and let us fix our gaze on you. Jesus, I pray that as we read the prophetic word from the Old Testament, that you the promised Messiah would become ever more clear in our vision. Focus us on you. Let our hearts soar in worship, in response to now seeing you clearer and longing for you more. 
Help us to put into perspective human effort that's called for in the text. Yet let our effort have as its goal the magnifying worship of you and revealing of you all the more in our midst, in our lives, throughout the world. Holy Spirit, accomplish this for us. We cannot do this without your presence. So we are desperately in need of you. So come and move in us. Move in us in power and change us and transform us. Help it do what Eric, Derek preached last Sunday. Help it refocus us on your priority, yourself. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Charles Spurgeon writes these words. I pray that our text may this morning flame from the Lord's own mouth with all the fire which once blazed about it, May faint hearts be encouraged and drowsy spirits be aroused as we hear the Lord say, my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. (laughs) He's quoting, I mean, I'm quoting him as he comments on the text I'm preaching on this morning. Go and read Spurgeon on this. Go to last week's message and hear Derek preach the opening of Haggai. My desire this morning for you and for my own soul is that our hearts would be lifted from the troubles of this life and that our eyes would gaze on the wonders of the gospel, the good news of hope and peace proclaimed by the mouth of God's prophet Haggai to a run-down, discouraged, disillusioned, sinful people often tempted only to look back or fo- and focus on the past, comparing it to now and then just looking down at the things around them and finding themselves stuck. We find ourselves stuck in the here and now focused, and the, uh, the in, in the end, really only self-focused and faint-hearted. The that souls, uh, souls' vision, our souls' visions would be uh, the vision. Sorry, I don't even know what I wrote. <laughs> Welcome to me typing things out at Starbucks. Let your Disappointed soul sounds better than what I wrote. Fearful soul, weakness that has crept in over the years. Maybe anger and frustration over the recent years and paralysis in our decision making. Be helped by God's word today. That's my desire. My desire as we approach the word is that we would, that we would join along with the pastors of this church and be refocused 2020 and 2021. How many of you have heard phrases that start with that so many times in the last probably year? Boy, hasn't the year 2020 been, and then you fill in the blank, and 2021, oh my gosh. 2020 and 2021 have revealed enough of our need for God's refocusing of our souls, but the truth remains that 2021 and 20 and the last two years <laughs> are not the only years of struggle and difficulty. 
Maybe some of you have been through suffering maybe just a couple of years ago when you hear people whining about what's going on related to COVID. You're like, you have no idea what suffering is. The last two years have been rough. Mine started long before 2021. Mine started when my mom and dad were praying over me in the cradle in 1964. Those of you that are young, there was an era, and it was long ago, 1964. It would remain true from the cradle to the grave that I would need God and his mercy. And so Haggai preaches to my soul. My trouble started long ago. We're going to look at two things that I believe that come emerge from the text. There's way more than these two things that emerge from the text, but here's the two things. Looking back and looking forward, that's one. I know that sounds like two, but use the word and in your sentence. Looking back and looking forward, they're together. Look, sorry, looking back and looking around. I worded it wrong. Looking back and looking around. And then, number two, looking forward. This first one, looking back and looking around. Verse 3, if you'd look at that with me again. Verse 3. Through the prophet Haggai, God asks these questions. And this first one. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Looking back to the former glory. Our struggle is often to look back to the former glory days, particularly the older ones in the group. We, we love hearing of man. We can think back to the glory days. I referred to Church of the Covenant back during the glory days. There were almost at some point like 1,500 people gathering at a big basketball gym about a block away from our building. Those were the glory days, kind of in our mind if we think back to it. Could think like that. But it's here when I considered the text that there's more that's going on, and I could have possibly preached the wrong message. Haggai has been used in some amazing ways, but it's used in some disturbing ways as well. It's an often go to text for building projects, which is awesome, by the way. Use that. If when, when this church goes into a building, Let's building project again one day. Let's use Haggai, no question. But let's consider it rightly in its proper place. Here's what my message could have done. I'm going to clue you into how we put some messages together. We're trained in these things. We're also, the example is amazing, is often in the message we'll have what's called the sin dilemma is in the message. The text always reveals our weakness. Our sinfulness is revealed in the text, but it is met every single, every single time with a redemptive relief in Christ. So the sinful dilemma for us would be looking back on better times with judgment and discouragement, looking around and sinfully comparing our present situation to the times when things were great in the past. That's our struggle. And then we'll consider the redemptive movement or moment in the text, looking forward to better things that are to come, clearly in the text. So let's go out there and get it done. Word says work, doesn't it? Well, I would say yes, that's a good message. It is a good message, but it would be truncated if we did not consider this message rightly. There is more going on. One is the Lord is not just revealing that it's sinful to look back 
and to consider the former glory. He's the one that asked us to look back. He knows we're going to do this, but the Lord come, comes to us, and he's the one that says, or asks in this, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He's on the scene. It's about 18 years after the people have come back into Jerusalem after being in the exile. And the Lord acknowledges, I'll bet if you look back, you're gonna, some of you are old enough in the room, you're gonna look back to the former days. It's like 70 something years. It is conceivable that in Haggai's preaching and proclamation of this prophetic word, the Lord is saying to them, I'll bet you're present. Actually, it sounds weird. The Lord doesn't say I'll bet. The Lord knows they're present. You were there. You saw Solomon's amazing temple. No other temple like it. Read the scriptures about the various temples that have been built over the years. Solomon's temple rocked the house, so to speak. You were there. You remember it. And he refers to it in language that we will identify with. It was our former glory. The former glory. The Lord intentionally tells us to look back. He takes us there. He doesn't just let us wrongly look back. He takes us there. But he does this purposefully. He wants to do a juxtaposition of glories. He is saying, look back. There was a former glory. It's here, uh, it's, excuse me, it's nearing the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, this time frame. And what they did during the Feast of Tabernacles is they would remember God's great deeds. And in particular, they were remembering God's great deeds in the wilderness for the nation of Israel. Remembering God's great deeds before they had entered the promised land. Is what they were doing in the Feast of Tabernacles. The folks would camp outside for seven days during this feast. They would live in a, like in a camping mode versus living inside. So you now know the opening words in Haggai's prophecy about your focusing now on your paneled homes is during this Feast of Tabernacles is to let them know, remember what we're doing. We're outside. We're making it rough so that we'll remember how rough it was for the nation of Israel and the Lord saves them out in that way as well. And so he is saying these things to them because they're clearly, they're in the middle of this, going through this feast. Solomon's temple was great. And it had, by the way, been constructed during this feast. So what a great time. During this feast, the people are intentionally living it, living rough. They are overlanding, in a sense, if any of you are familiar with that. And Solomon's temple is being built during this time. So now, fast forward several hundred years, and Solomon's temple has been laid to waste. Ian Dugan comments about what the people must have struggled with. Ian Dugan writes this, Present realities seem to be all too depressingly mundane, hardly able to match up to the celebrated mighty acts of God in the past. Where was the former glory The new temple that they were building seemed an empty symbol. Another commentator said, it's very likely not going to come even close to Solomon's temple. Dugan goes on, lacking the splendor of the former days. 
Now it was simply a small cog in the plans of someone else's empire, apparently irrelevant to the flow of world events. And Dugid would go on to point out they had just simply been granted permission to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild by the Persian emperor Cyrus. It's not like Israel had come rolling in and have now finally taken over and now their glory is back as a nation. No, some of you can go back and you're allowed to build your temple. And now they've been waning in this effort for 18 or so years. Looking back, And remembering that the spirit of the Lord, from what we know in the text, the glory of the Lord in the past indwelt the temple. But do you know what also is going back in their memory? When the Lord points this out, he asks this question, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? How do you see it now? And before we get to now, do you know what's occurring in their mind? Those people that are alive, they'll remember something else about the past. They're going to remember when the Spirit of the Lord left the temple. Ezekiel the prophet writes in very prophetic language, Ezekiel 10, 15 through 19, these words. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Shabar canal, And when the cherubim went up, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. If you go back and study a little bit out of Ezekiel, you find out that there's this chariot that is loaded with wheels. But it's prophetic language to say the Lord is omnipresent. He can move in and out of time He can be here in this time and there in that time. He's omnipresent. He can be here and there at the same time. And so this language is, and from the cherubim, they lift up their wings and they mount up from the earth and the wheels did not turn from them. In other words, the Lord's omnipresence remains. His omnipresence remains. Don't forget that. And when they stood still, these stood still, the wheels, And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was with them. And now verse 18, hear these words from the prophet Ezekiel. The glory, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Now look, being a good old charismatic, we talked a lot about the Shekinah glory, that light of the Lord and what's being imagined and being envisioned in Ezekiel is all of that blinding, piercing glory of the Lord gathers in his omnipresence, mounts up in a shaft of light above the earth and departs and leaves the temple. So when the Lord says, look back to the former glory, he's taking them back to that moment as well when he removed his favor from their presence. We know from the scriptures the Lord never departed from his people. God's word will tell us other places. The Lord is not confined by the walls of the temple. The Lord's not just gonna live in a temple and that's the only place he is. The temple was a sign that God was with them and he says to them right before their exile into Babylon, you disobedient people in so many things, I'm removing my favor 
from you. And he leaves them in that sense. Could not have been worse for them in that aspect. Faithful preaching of Ezekiel would say, it's very clear, his omnipresence remains. His abiding, gracious effort seemingly departs from them for a rebuke and correction and discipline. But he never left them. They're left to experience the departure of his favor so that they will see, his, see their need and their great need for him. What a nightmare it must have been for them. The blinding, glorious omnipresence of the Lord gathering up and out of his temple with the resounding messages, I am now leaving you. Looking around and seeing the devastation then in our text, seeing the weakness in that sense, seeing the former glory in comparison, this was just almost too much for them to bear. They've been brought back and they privately, the Lord's present has not come back. The temple itself is now destroyed. We are caught up in all kinds of distraction. You know, there are a couple things in Scripture, and when I read them, I privately panic. This is one of them. For the Lord to mount up and leave us is seemingly unimaginable. You know, we've grown up in the era and the age of the church of hearing the Lord is with you. He's come amazingly in the gospel to us. But to imagine his departure is a nightmare. When I hear of the story of King Saul and the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and he knew it not, it's shocking to me. It's a nightmare to me. There's a lesser version of the departure of the Lord in when he has healed the demoniac cast out all of the demons, Jesus gets in the boat and the demoniac is going to do what every one of us wants to do is get in the boat to be with the Savior. And Jesus says, no, go into the cities and tell them what I've done for you. Privately, I'm personally panicking that I couldn't remain with Jesus. But the joy is Jesus promises his presence in the Spirit. So feel the relief the Lord has not departed from you. But feel the tension these people must have felt. Here's where application for us is. Both the past and the present become distorted. When we look back and we look around and we forget of God's faithfulness, focusing only on the past in an unredemptive way, then reveals how great things were and how bad things are now. That's where we end up. We forget and miss lessons learned then and then, therefore, we are not learning what we need to learn. Now, focusing only on the present when, uh, excuse me, can at times warp even our recollection of the past and rewrite and warp true history. Have you ever watched the news lately? You thought, they're just rewriting history. Well, you and I do that. If we won't remember the past and God's faithfulness, we're going to rewrite that history for us. We forget about God at worst altogether. We might even abandon him. In pride, we take credit 
for the success in the past. And we blame him for trouble that has come in the present. Rich gospel doctrines are now distorted and truncated. And the first, excuse me, and the first thing that goes is God's sovereignty is diminished. And the truth of our radical depravity is quickly forgotten. And all of a sudden, the Lord is unjust in our suffering. And that's just today that we do that. Oh, what a glorious thing it is that the Lord would call us by his spirit to look back and to look around. There is a shift in the text. God, in his great mercy, intentionally takes us back and opens our eyes to see him again and to see his grace and great salvation again. I am the God that brought you out of Egypt. Should be sweet words in our ears. To a New Testament believer, those words are sweet. I'm the God that saved you. And this is what he's doing in the text. He's now, we were looking back and looking around and the Lord is intentionally taking us there, but now he's now saying to look forward. To look forward in verse three, he ends, who is left among you? Who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? How do you see it now? In other words, now, considering things now, is it nothing in your eyes? Listen to the transition in verse four. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel. There's a shift. He does want us to look in the past, and he does want to consider things now. But I believe what's happening is because of what finally comes in this text here. Yet now be strong, declares the Lord. Be strong, all you people of the land. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. He's saying, now consider this, now consider this, now consider this. And then in verse six, he says this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I've worded this one looking forward, but maybe a better way to word this point is looking forward now. It's not a play on words. It's we're right now going to look forward. We're going to realize that right now, it's right, the Lord's Spirit has not departed from us. His favor remains with us. Now look forward. Now look forward is what the text is doing. Let's consider these words, yet now. Yet now in verse four. It's in this very moment of looking back and looking around, this very moment of remembering the former glory and devastation, former glory and devastation, and seeing the present things has come in that sense to nothing. But the Lord says, But now is an immediate infusion from hope from a gracious God. It's right before verse four, the Lord said, Isn't it nothing in your eyes? And he could at that moment say, That's right. It's nothing, and that's the way it will ever be for you, and just end it all then. And he does not do that. He says, it's now, when you think it's all gone, when you think there is no hope, there is all the hope in the world. All the hope in the world is now found. He says in this, and it starts with what is present and true now. I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. I never left you. My spirit remains in your midst. And he repeats it again and again. I was with you then, 
Your experience was as if I had departed from you. I did not depart from you. I am with you. And then he couples it in verse six with what I've titled the message, which I think are some of the most precious words in the text is, yet once more, in a little while. Boy, that beats in the heart of a believer. Let's fast forward to the end of this world. Let's fast forward to the end of that. The Lord says to us then, yet in a little while. He writes to the New Testament believers who are, Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is it going to happen now? And his word is yet in a little while. It may seem like it's taking him forever. It's not. His own words of promise are yet in a little while. But it's also in these words that we find that there is something going on in Old Testament prophecy that has a glorious truth for us. I love that firing of the cannon. Sorry, I just like ballistics and guns and things like that. But that firing of the cannon, but this one just kind of, it fires off and has an immediate, an immediate hopeful reply from the Lord. And this one is yet in a little while, you're gonna see the glory of this temple yet again. In a short time, the temple's gonna be built. My spirit's gonna come back in to the Holy of Holies. And I will have returned as a sign of promise to you that I will never depart from you. Precious people of Haggai's time experience that real joy. Temple is built, the Lord is back with them and his promises are true. That former glory now is coming, that beautiful promise of come yet in a little while. But here is the great truth from this prophecy. It does have that immediate, in a sense, fulfillment of the prophecy. But in the language that's coming in yet a little while, it fires way off into the distance into the future. And you and I have already experienced it and are experiencing it and will experience it one day. Consider these words. Let's look at this. The temple has been rebuilt. Yes, my spirit has returned to behind the veil. It's a clue in the text. <laughs> doesn't say in this text, but he does return, but he's behind the veil. Yet you are my people, and all the nations around you will know it again. Great sign to the nations around him. But this prophetic language is using a greater redemptive History in its proclamation. The eyes of the readers and the hearts of the hearers are now gripped with the grander eschatological voice of the creator of the universe. Yet, once more, in a little while, verse 7, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry ground, and I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He goes on to say, the silver is mine. <laughs> the gold is mine. Are you worried about the splendor of this building? It all belongs to me. I'll gather it from the four corners of the earth. Verse nine, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. There is a better temple coming, is what he's saying. Well, this one's gonna be built, but there's someone that's gonna arrive on the scene one day him in the flesh is gonna come on the scene and at his death, that veil is gonna be ripped from the top to the bottom. There's a temple coming and now over and superseding the temple that they've been longing for in a little while. The words of a soon-to-be-fulfilled sense and coupled with the following creative language are packed with the longer, greater term promise in a greater redemption that is 
going to come in swaddling clothes, born in a seemingly little town, really a nothing town of Bethlehem. The Son of Man, the Son of God, will come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. The latter glory is coming. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the light. Talk about the Shekinah glory. The glory of God has come to us. He has lived for us. He has borne our sins on himself and died in our place, satisfying the wrath of God that should have been poured out that day by Haggai's words and was not poured out that day. Jesus, satisfying the wrath of God, was buried but raised himself from the grave on the third day, ascended into heaven. (laughs) Can you imagine what that must have been like? That private panic for the disciples, a secured hope in their hearts, but something radically changes as Jesus returns to be with the Father in heaven. He promises his spirit will come in power on his people, and he does. Hear the words of John in Revelation chapter 18. Hear Jesus, hear God's word referring to this. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be no more. Revelation 19, 11, 16 will go on in the same context. Then I saw heaven open, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, and following, on, uh, following him on white horses from his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. Is it serious, the king? No. Is it Herod, the great king? No. It's king of kings and lord of lords. It just a little while. He will return and call his church, his bride, to himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Now there's a marvelous filling of this promise. Greater glory will far outweigh that former glory. That latter glory that's to come, we've already begun to experience it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We experience it by the presence of his spirit. And in every one of our hearts is that imminent return, return hopefulness in just a little while. Jesus will come back. Death will be swallowed up in victory. There will no longer be the sting of death. So verse 
58 in 1 Corinthians says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Maybe at this point we thought, oh wait, there is human effort the Lord has called us to. But it's human effort empowered by his spirit holding fast to something that is great and true. Holding on to his promises and maybe here's the words that I used for this text, working forward. You'll find that right in the middle of this, you'll find right in the middle of be strong, be strong, you'll find in verse four, work for I'm with you. We're called to do, not just marvel, but we're called to do and marvel. We're called to marvel and do. We're to work, but we're to work in such a way that we're focused on the past and focused on the present and our eyes lifted up and focused on our promised future glory in Christ work. Maybe one way we could say this is work with one hand on the gospel together with our focus on the gospel. We're to gather and work on the church the Lord has called us to right now, which is seemingly that new temple. Gather and work on the church. Build up the church and strengthen her will be the emphasis of the New Testament. My spirit is now with you. Now go and work and build the church knowing all the while God's promise is sure that he will build the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Nothing will stop the advance of the church. Work, what a great promise in the scriptures. Work in the harvest field where the church has been planted. Recently concerning Tucson, there's a transition that's occurred in mine and my wife's heart about coming here and being with our kids. And recently for me, I had a picture of being at one of your Starbucks and a couple of older gentlemen in their biking outfits. And I'm not talking about Scott. And I had a sense from the Lord for them, and it was a desperation for them. But it occurred to me, it's actually for my family's love for this town of Tucson. There are many in this town that are lost in their retirement. You know them. You've met them. You've had coffee with them. You're reaching out to them. The Lord has called us to work in the harvest field of Tucson. He's planted this church here to love this city and reveal his glory in this city. Go to these men and women that are lost. I use that as a metaphor. If you're riding your bike, I'm not making fun of you. I'm going to be one of those old, weird-shaped guys in a tight outfit looking like Mr. Rogers riding a bike one day. I know that's going to be me. But reach out to the ones that are lost in their retirement. Some have more money they know what to do with. They own three or four homes. One is up in a cold area of the world. We don't know why. And they come down here. Maybe that's you, but the Lord has brought you into this room so that you would hear that great hope of Christ. We often do focus on the here and now. We build our paneled homes in the here and now, and that's happening in this city. It's happening in your town. Go and love them and lead them to Christ. Work in the harvest field where this church has been planted. Now's a great time to have the band 
Rick. Thank you for serving in that way. Verse 9 reads like this. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. It's not a vain hope. It's a certain reality. Declared to us through the prophet Haggai. Secured for us through the shed blood of Christ. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And listen to this great, in a sense, closing but energizing forward push from the text. And in this place, I will give peace. You know, there's a terrifying moment for the disciples after Jesus' death. They've heard that he's been raised from the dead from some women that they think are just lost their minds or caught in grief. And while the doors are locked, Jesus suddenly appears to them. And he says, peace be with you. There's a peace in Christ that is only found as a gift from the Lord. I don't know what you're looking for to resolve 20 and 21. I don't know what you're looking for to resolve grievous suffering that's slammed into your family. I don't know where you're going, but I can tell you where the text points you. Points you to the Savior, who is now present by the presence of the Spirit. I will give peace. Jesus is offering you his peace. If you would stand with me, and I'll pray to close us.